Father, give us grace to know more of our need of grace. We have corporately gathered to feast on your word. Guard our minds from wandering as we study. Give us discipline of mind. Help us to live in this moment. To receive these words as water to parched lips. As food to a growling stomach. Help this exposition to land on us. We are, we are confused sheep. Really wondering why things are happening the way they are happening. We are herding sheep. We need you, our great shepherd, to pick us up and mend the wounds. We are stubborn sheep. Wanting to go our own way. Bring the rod of correction through the text today. Let the weeds that grow in our souls be cut down at the root. We are on the edge of our seats. Ready to receive your good word, Lord. If we do not encounter you in the text this day, we may collapse under the load. We are desperate people with desperate needs and desperate longings to hear from you. We go to the book now with expectation. Amen. In our text, John, a first century follower of Christ, has been transported to heaven. We have in Revelation 5 his first-hand account inspired by the Spirit of God. There's a lot going on in this text. <laughs> we, we have a mysterious scroll, a slain lamb, someone crying in heaven, and angels who lost their song. So, we have a lot of work before us. And here's how we're going to go at the text. First, we're going to be answering three questions that unlock the text. Then we're going to be carving out three applications to bring home the text. Answering three questions that unlock the text carving out three applications that bring home the text. Let's begin with answering three questions that unlock the text. The first question is this. What is this mysterious scroll? Verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, church, you may remember from last week that John saw God the Father seated on a throne of unapproachable light. We beheld with John the Father's inestimable beauty and majesty. 
John cannot behold the face of the Father because he dwells in, in brilliant, majestic, unapproachable light. But John can see a hand, a hand that's holding a scroll. God the Father is not holding a book. Notice it says scroll. You are used to books with square pages and a spine that provides a, a hinge action to anchor the pages. Sometimes the pages are stitched into the spine. Sometimes they are glued to the spine. That's called a codex binding. Such a wonderful invention. And we're grateful for that book format. However, John in the first century in the seven churches he's writing to didn't have codex books. They had scrolls that unfolded like this. Grant Osborne says scrolls were at least 10 meters long. That's over 32 feet. That's a big hand to hold a scroll that size. The scroll had writing on the front and on the back. In the Roman Empire, they would only write on the back of a scroll if they wanted everything to be in one document, one scroll. Not part one and part two, but the fullness of this matter is included here in one scroll. This scroll is sealed, locked, closed, protected by seven seals. When you wrote a letter in the first century and you didn't want anyone to know what, what you were writing. You would seal it with wax. Basically a wax blob that you would then impress with a stamping device. You could easily discern if it was ever tampered with. Uh, this, of course, was, was not often used in personal correspondence, but rather in official capacities. This practice closely resembles the Jewish and Roman contract deeds. Uh, deeds of purchase, uh, rental and lease agreements all had seals with wax impressed with the author's insignia as a token of authenticity. It would have been well understood in the first century the number of seals shows the importance. One seal, least important. Two seals, doubly important. Very few documents in the Roman Empire had seven seals. Roman wills, Roman wills, they had seven seals. A seal for each witness. Each witness put a seal on the document and all the seven witnesses had to be present when, that seal, when their seal was broken. If all parties are not present, then the document cannot be opened and read aloud. John's audience would know that a seven-sealed scroll was of highest importance. It was very official. The members of these seven churches had all seen scrolls with seals on it. But very few had seen one with seven seals on it. What was in the scroll? This was a scroll of human destiny. Filled with secret decrees and counsels. It contained the events of history and the world's destiny. God the Father wrote it. And God the Father sealed it. This scroll constitutes God's plan for history. In this scroll is found redemptive history and God's purposes for the entire creation. This scroll contains God's plan of judgment and redemption. 
answering three questions that unlock the text. The first question, what is this mysterious scroll? It's God's plan for history. God's unfolding redemptive purposes. Question number two, why is, why is someone crying in heaven? Verse two, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? He's a mighty angel. Now, we know from 2 Kings that one angel killed 185,000 elite Assyrian soldiers, and that was an average angel. This is a mighty angel. We don't have a name, but we do have a description. He's powerful. His voice billows. Creation shakes. Heaven goes silent. This is a deep-voiced, extremely powerful, high-ranking angel. Who is worthy to open the scroll? His voice penetrates every corner of the earth, every square inch of heaven. Who is able to cross the sea of crystal and make it through the flashes of lightning and the rumblings and peals of thunder proceeding from the throne? Who is able to approach this God from whom the angels hid their faces? Verse 3, and no one, in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. That average angel that killed 185,000 Assyrians bowed his head. That mighty angel that asked this question, he's implying he can't open the scroll. The angels that guarded the entrance of the Garden of Eden they cower at this question. All the glorious seraphim and Isaiah and all the cherubim and Ezekiel bury their head in their hands. Michael the archangel becomes Michael the missing angel. He's not up for this task. Gabriel, who delivered the message of Jesus' birth, he brought the good news to mankind. But now he only has bad news for mankind. I can't open the scroll. There is no one worthy among the sinless angels. They are strong. They are glorious. They are majestic. They are sinless. But they are not worthy. Noah? Noah says, I'll build an ark. But I can't open that scroll. Abraham, the father of a great nation but not great enough to pry open that scroll. Isaac and Jacob take a step back. They are not worthy. Moses? <laughs> Moses says, I held the law in my hands, but I'm not worthy to hold the scroll in my hands. David, Israel's greatest king, stands helpless before the scroll. Daniel shakes his head. I can't do it. Joseph, I saved God's people from starvation, but I can't save them here. Peter and Paul, we died for the cause of Christ. Even their martyr's death can't open the seals. Mary, Mother Mary, says, I birthed the Messiah into the world, 
but I'm not capable of doing anything with that scroll. The mighty angel looked in three places, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Under the earth, that's another way of referring to those who are dead. It's a universal search. Here's the point. There's a universality to this request. And the response is crickets. There is an utter inability of any angel or any human to execute God's plan of redemption. Who is worthy to open the scroll? Here's another way to ask that question. Who is able to fix what is broken? Who is powerful enough to overthrow all wickedness and eradicate sin? Who can unfold history to accomplish its purposes? Who is qualified? Who is deserving? Who has the right authorization? Verse 4, John picks up the story. And I began to weep loudly. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John is now realizing he can't open it either. The prospect of sin never coming to an end wrecks him. If that scroll is not opened, the Bible's promises don't come true and hope is defeated. John's tears represent the tears of all God's people through all the centuries. If that scroll isn't opened, their tears will never be wiped. Their tears will never stop flowing. Brokenness will never be unbroken. Death will never be put to death. Answering three questions that unlock the text. The first question, what is this mysterious scroll? It's God's plan for history. God's unfolding redemptive purposes. Question number two, why is someone crying in heaven? John sees there's no one worthy to open the scroll and execute the Father's plan of redemption. Third question, why is a farm animal loose around the throne? Verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. I understand the elders to be a certain rank of angel. So an angel speaks to John and he says, weep no more. This verse is steeped in Old Testament imagery. The lion of the tribe of Judah, that's Genesis 49. God promised a lion-like ruler of the nations, a military conqueror. The root of David, that's Isaiah 11. God promised from the root of David's tree to bring one who will rescue his people. The lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, both phrases taken from the common stock of Jewish messianic titles. This one can open the seven seals. He gives the perfect unveiling. John is told to weep no more. He has verbal reasons not to weep. But he does not have any visual reasons not to weep. He's told of a lion, but he doesn't see a lion yet. He hears of a lion, but then notice what he sees in verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
He hears of a lion, and then he sees a lamb. That pattern of hearing about one thing but then turning and seeing another is going to happen again next week. Of all the animals in the animal kingdom, why does John see Jesus as a lamb? Of all the farm animals, why is a lamb chosen and not a cow or, or a chicken or a goat? This is the first of 28 times that Jesus will be identified as the lamb in the book of Revelation. This theme started in Genesis with Abraham and Isaac. God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. It continues in the next book of the Bible, Exodus. During the Passover, they were to sacrifice a lamb without blemish. The death angel would see the blood of the lamb and then pass over them. It was predicted in Isaiah that the Messiah would be a, like a lamb led to the slaughter. When John the Baptist came preaching about Jesus, he pointed to Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb is now standing somewhere in the area close to the throne. The Lamb was standing as though it had been slain. Now that's a strange phrase. Most lambs do not stand when they're bleeding out. They're laid over on their side. This lamb's throat is slit. The marks of the slaying are prominent. This is a paradox. Slain speaks of death, and standing speaks of resurrection. Out of the ashes of the crucifixion rose the salvation of the world. There was no other way of achieving these ends than the cross. When Satan placed Jesus on the cross, it was his greatest tactical error, for he took part in his own defeat. I want you to notice that the lamb still bears the sacrificial marks, his wounds are still evident. One pastor told a story of a Sunday school teacher who asked her children what she thought would be a trick question. Only she was the one that ended up being left speechless. She asked her class, Children, is there anything man-made in heaven? To her surprise, one of the young boys spoke up and said, Yes, ma'am, there is. She laughed and said, Now what could possibly be in heaven that is man-made? To which the young child said, the nail prints in Jesus' hands. We have further detail about the appearance of this lamb. He has seven horns and seven eyes. Remember, this is apocalyptic literature, sci-fi poetry if you like. This is not intended to provide a photographic reproduction of what we will see when we see Jesus. I don't think when we see Jesus, we will see him as a lamb with his throat slit. This is, this is pointing to all the perfections of the lamb of God. Seven, the number of perfection. All the perfections that made it possible for him to approach the throne. Verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. You may want to underline the little word took. 
The verb took is intensive perfect, emphasizing the permanence of his grasp. <laughs> he took the scroll. He took the scroll. He took the scroll and he's not letting go. Jesus has seized destiny. Not just his destiny, all destiny. Jesus is the one who ensures that the universe will have meaning. He will fulfill the purposes of God. The Father's plans will not be frustrated. They will be fulfilled. The moment he took the scroll, John's tears ceased. The next sound we hear is not weeping, but singing. Stop weeping, John, and start singing. Verse 8, and when he had taken the scroll and the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each, that's the, that's the four living creatures and the 24 elders, each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, people have made this ridiculously literalistic. That's why you have Catholics talking about why we should pray to saints who will offer our prayers to God. That's just nonsense. We have one mediator between God and man. And it's Christ Jesus. Plus, I hold that both the 24 elders and the four living creatures are angelic beings, not humans. So you have here angels falling down in worship after Jesus takes the scroll. Angels offering the prayers of people was common in other non-inspired Jewish apocalyptic literature of the day. These four majestic creatures and these lesser majestic 24 elders fall down and sing. They fall down and sing while playing a harp. Also, while holding a golden bowl full of incense, representing the prayers of the saints on earth and the prayers of the people in these seven local churches. In Psalm 141, David asked that his prayers be counted as incense to God. John picks up on the imagery. If Christ had not triumphed, our prayers would have gone unanswered. But back to the angels. How can you play a harp while falling down, while singing, while holding a bowl? Don't misunderstand the nature of, of symbolism. They are worshiping by singing and worshiping by recognizing that the redeemed prayers will reach the throne because the lamb took the scroll. They are playing musical instruments, a harp. And you're probably like, man, I knew we would be playing a harp in heaven. Am I going to be wearing a diaper too? No, this is symbolism. You will be more you in heaven than you've ever been. Plus, these are angels, not humans playing the harp. Verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. <laughs> this is a spontaneous outburst of worship 
Uh, you can put this verse in lines like song lyrics because it's a song. This is a responsive song. God did something and all heaven responds like a spiritual reflex. This is a fresh song, a new song. In Exodus 15, a new song, same language, was sung by Moses and the Israelites on the east bank of the Red Sea after God split it. In the Old Testament, God's people sing a new song when he intervenes and saves and delivers them. Psalm 33, Psalm 40, Psalm 96, Psalm 98, Psalm 144, Psalm 149, Isaiah 42. All heaven sings this responsive song and this new song. Having, having big groups sing this kind of music was common in the amphitheaters of these cities where the seven churches were located. They witnessed crowds of people singing cultural songs with harps and actions. This area, ancient Asia Minor, was very patriotic. But their patriotism crossed the line into idolatry. They would sing when Emperor Domitian entered. Worthy are you. They would chant it back and forth. Worthy are you. This scene in heaven underscores the legitimacy of Jesus' reign. The world presents their worthy one. And heaven presents its worthy one. Let's evaluate the lyrics of their song. They are singing to Jesus saying he was slain and by his blood he ransomed a people for God the Father. Redemption is not aimless. It's particular. He died for certain people. He knows their names. He knows their tribes, their language, their zip code. You are bought for someone. The Father. You were bought with a price. Blood. Suffering in itself is not redemptive. Many people have suffered. But Jesus suffered as the perfect sinless lamb of God. Jesus purchased a scattered people. Scattered among the nations. The effects of the atonement reach around the world. Now, ransomed may not be a common word for you. In fact, one of my children just last week asked me what it meant. He heard it somewhere or it was in a book he was reading. John is using common terminology of his day. The Roman Empire, where these seven churches were located, was full of slaves. One historian said there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Slaves could, could be ransomed, redeemed, bought back, by giving the slaveholder silver and gold. There wasn't any way you could buy yourself out of slavery. You were just stuck. You needed someone to come and purchase you. And that's the picture here in this song. You were not redeemed with silver and gold, but as Peter says, with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like the lamb without spot or blemish. Non-Christian? Non-Christian, you can't muster the moral currency required to pay your ransom. The purchase price is beyond you. Here's the gospel. There was a debt I could not pay. Jesus paid a debt he did not owe. The Puritan Thomas Watson 
believed that ransom was Jesus' greatest work. He said, and I quote, Great was the work of creation, but greater the work of redemption. It cost more to redeem us than to make us. In the one there was but the speaking of a word, and the other the shedding of blood. The song lyrics continue in verse 10. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The four living creatures and the 24 elders, which are angels, sing of redemption that Jesus purchased for human beings. You have made them a kingdom, and they shall reign on the earth. These humans will reign with Christ. What does John see next? Verse 11. Then I looked... And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Let's stop there. Greco-Roman kings of the day had their courtrooms artistically expressed in terms of being cosmic, which itself was portrayed in, in concentric circles. In a sense, you have that here. The big throne... Then around the throne were the four living creatures. Then outside of them were the 24 elders. Then outside of them, a wider concentric circle of thousands of angels. Myriads of angels. Myriad was the largest single number used in Greek. John did not have a higher number. Myriad is 10,000. So he says 10,000s of 10,000s and thousands of thousands. Now you may want to add that up. 10,000 times 10,000, it is 100 million. 1,000 times 1,000, that's 1 million. So there must have been 101 million angels. Well, don't you deserve an A in math class? <laughs> John didn't sit down and count them. One, two, three, four, 100 million. 100 million one, 100 million two, 100 million three, 100... Uh, I lost count. I've got to start over. He does this with numbers all throughout the book. He wants you to be overwhelmed by the big number. It's a number impossible to count. It's not taken arithmetically, but apocalyptically. Don't break out your calculators. It's a number beyond human calculation. That's the point. These Christians and these seven churches felt outnumbered. They felt alone, felt like a minority. They felt weak and insignificant. The culture sneered at them. In a day when the church was small, isolated, and struggling, what an encouragement to know you're not alone. There are an innumerable number of other created beings falling before this same lamb. In verse 12, we have a second song. A second new song. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is a, this is a lot of angels singing. One mighty angel by himself had a booming bass voice to reach all of heaven and all of earth. Imagine how loud all these angels were. If the crystal floor before the throne could have been cracked, 
they would have cracked it. It's a deafening roar. The angels pile up phrases for rhetorical impact. You are worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. These things don't, don't belong to Domitian. They belong to Jesus. What we have in the second song is seven attributes of the Lamb. These same seven attributes are attributed to God the Father in other places. This is another proof that Jesus is divine. He's God. This is praise that only belongs to God. Now let's just orient ourselves in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4. Angels worship God the Father for his work of creation. Revelation chapter 5. Angels worship God the Son for his work in redemption. Verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying. Let's pause here. Jesus deserves to be worshipped and revered by all creation. Not just angels, not just humans, but all creation will praise the Lamb. I don't know how dogs and fish and horses and mosquitoes praise, but they will join this mighty choir in praising their creator. Let's pick up where we left off in verse 13. 13 is the third new song. To him who sits on the throne, that's God the Father, and to the Lamb, that's Jesus, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Same worship to both persons. One God, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God as Father is a God without human skin. God as Son is God coming with skin. God as Spirit is God who gets inside our skin. Verse 14 and the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. We began our day by answering three questions that unlocked the text. Now we will carve out three applications that bring home the text. Answering three questions that unlock the text. Carving out three applications that bring home the text. Application number one. The songs we sing on earth should reflect the content of the songs in heaven. Music plays a larger role in the book of Revelation than any other New Testament book. Revelation is hymn laden. There are 15 hymns or hymn fragments. This scene in heaven with God on the throne and the lamb with the scroll is said to be the inspiration for Handel's Messiah. I don't think we need to overstate the musical worship from this text. I disagree with some that this is a pattern for the church's liturgy. I'm not pulling a weekly worship pattern from apocalyptic literature. I'm not coming in here with golden bowls and harps. But we should not overlook the obvious. One, feelings are never the target of our aim when it comes to singing. 
It's not what kind of worship is more pleasing to me, but what kind of worship is more pleasing to the Lord. When heaven sings, they aim at pleasing the Lamb, not aim at how it makes them feel. That's one. Two, we need to sing biblically correct lyrics. The music we sing is handcuffed to the Bible we preach. The average church, I'm not going to beat around the bush, the average church sings more heresies than any church council ever condemned. Lyrics matter. Content in songs matter. Listen to Andrew Fletcher, a Scottish political activist in the 1600s. Not a pastor, a political activist in the 1600s said, and I quote, let me write the songs of a nation. I don't care who writes its laws. Lyrics matter. Content in songs matter. Songs are portable theology. You take them with you. These three songs in chapter 5 are deeply theological and they carry a storyline. They carry themes that begin in the Old Testament and find their fulfillment in Jesus. These angels are moved. This is a thought. These angels are moved to fall on their faces singing of the ransom Jesus purchased. The ransom made them hit their knees. And they didn't even need the ransom. They were sinless. Angels who did not need a ransom sing to the Lamb. How much more should we who desperately need His ransom ought to audibly sing to this Lamb? By the way, I I can't wait to sing in heaven. I can't wait to join these angels, join this heavenly choir, join this heavenly band. Our, our church here sings so well. You really sing out. It's a, it's a foretaste of heaven. Visitors comment on that to me all the time. Wow, we, we're just not used to churches singing like your church sings. You don't know this, but Matthew records our singing on Sundays. He wants to use it for different things. But he can't use it because I sing so loudly I ruin the recording. <laughs> and I don't care. I plan to keep doing it. I can't sing at a whisper when I've been ransomed. The ransomed don't sing at a whisper. Have you been ransomed? Have you been ransomed? You're not hearing me. Have you been ransomed? Yes. Then why are you whisper singing? Application number two. The theological truths in this text fuel death-defying devotion to reach every dark, dingy corner of this earth with the glorious gospel. And that's a mouthful. That is a mouthful. The theological truths in this text fuel death-defying devotion to reach every dark, dingy corner of this earth with the glorious gospel. 
Jesus ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This particular redemption should fuel our desire for global missions. It's why some of you will leave the comforts of America and go to a little village and spend your life there. Learn the language, adapt to the culture, eat their foods, walk in their jungles. The lamb has saved some from every tribe. Think about that. There are thousands of different tribes. The lamb has saved some from every language, even the extinct languages. This passage... Revelation 5 sent William Carey to China saying, I know he has redeemed there. Revelation 5 fueled his death-defying devotion to reach the unreached. A.W. Tozer pointed out something that, that I do not want to be guilty of. He said, too many missionary appeals are based upon this fancied frustration of Almighty God. An effective speaker can easily excite pity in his hearers. So people enter Christian service from no higher motive than to help deliver God from the embarrassing situation his love has gotten him into. And his limited abilities seem unable to get him out of. End quote. In other words, God's desperate. He's in a bind. This passage will not allow you to have that mentality. What drives passion for unreached peoples is not guilt. It's glory. Glory for a lamb. One pastor begs, let's be finished with puny theology that results in paltry approaches to missions. We have a higher motive. The glory of the lamb. God's going to. God's going to gather some from every kindred, nation, tribe, and tongue, whether you're in on it or not. He doesn't need us, but we have the opportunity to be the vessels he uses. I've always prayed, Lord, if you want me to go to a little island, I'll just spend my life reaching that little island. I want my children to know it's no waste to spend your life reaching a dark, dingy corner of the earth with the gospel. I pray that they will have a part in an unreached group becoming reached. Particular atonement fuels global missions. I had three applications for you. That's two. Application number three. He's taken hold of the scroll. He's in control. If this chapter is true, if this apocalyptic vision really expresses divine truth, if it is true about the Lamb, then why are you fretting? Jesus is holding God's plan for history. He's going to bring it to pass. Jesus holds God's purposes for all creation in his hand. 
Jesus is going to carry out the Father's judgment and redemption. So to the anxious housewife, he's taken hold of the scroll. He's in control. To the worried parents, he's taken hold of the scroll. He's in control. You've got questions. I know. Well, what's going to happen with this war? Well, what's going to happen with my job? Well, what's going to happen with the rest of my life? Stop weeping, friend, and start singing. He has the scroll, and he's not letting go. Let's stand together. Jesus, you have the scroll, so we rest well. You have the scroll, so we refuse to lose hope. You have the scroll, so we will not live an anxious life. You have the scroll, so until the end of our days, we will see life through that lens. You have the scroll, you're in control.